0: Please open your Bibles with me to the book of 1 Peter. We come today to 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 13. And we will read through the first three verses of chapter 2. Let's pray that the reading and preaching and hearing of this word would be done in the Spirit for God's glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come as people in need And you come as a God ready to give. So we lean on your spirit to receive these words of life and words of truth. That the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear God's word from 1 Peter 1, verse 13, through chapter 2, verse 3. This is the very word of God. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. Since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God for all flesh is like grass and all its glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers and the flower fails, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy. And all slander like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation. If indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Thanks be to God. I don't know if you did this same science experiment in elementary school, but I remember it rocking my world. You take a few white flowers, usually carnations, and you place them in various vases with different colored waters. And you know what happens after a little bit of time. The white carnation in the blue water turns blue. The carnation in the orange water turns orange. And the carnation in the green water turns green. So often, there are people who, who, who have not understood the richness of the gospel and of Christianity, and they think of Christianity as a list of requirements like demanding a flower to turn a certain color. They think Christianity is captured in the commandment that a white carnation shall be blue and a yellow carnation shall not be yellow. And the natural human response is to say, I can't do this. And there's truth in that expression. But that's also not what Christianity is about. The truth is that never once does God require any of his children to do anything on their own strength. Not once at any point in the Christian life does God expect a single thing to be done by his children without his strength. He doesn't make salvation a conditional thing dependent on how well you turn yourself certain colors at his command. Instead, God acts first. And He enables us to live out of what He's done. God removes His people, to continue with the flower analogy, He removes His people from the poisonous soil of death and places them, roots them in the soil of rich nutrients in a vibrant life that then show forth in the lives of His children as they soak up this life and live out of their new, redefined life in God. God doesn't ask you to turn blue without putting you in blue water. My point is that God gives new birth to his people and it leads to new life. That new life flows from the new birth. The indicative, if you will, precedes the imperative. The facts precede the commands. The realities come before the requirements. And God gives those facts, those realities, So we look in our passage today and we see Peter gives five commands and every one of them is rooted in something that God has already done for his children. There are five commands and each one is connected to something God has already done in order to make those commands possible. The five commands are, first of all, set your hope. Second of all, be holy. Third of all, conduct yourself with fear. Fourth, love one another, and lastly, long for the pure spiritual milk. First, set your hope. This comes from verse 13. Peter says, Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, those phrases are dependent on this command. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. What he's saying is that because God has prepared a hope for you and an inheritance for you, there is only one object of your hope now, and it's that grace that will be brought at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So if you're supposed to be setting your hope, what is it that God has done? He has given you the grace in which you hope. God's grace has been on display in countless ways throughout Scripture, from his creation to the covenant of grace, to the ways that he led Israel But it's on display, especially in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, where we see his grace that gives life, which makes us able to have hope. Peter starts the this section, verse 13, with the word therefore. And as you've heard it said, if you see a therefore, you need to figure out what it's there for. And so you look back at the first 12 verses and you realize Peter is basing all this on what God has done in the beautiful inheritance that he has prepared for those who are in him in verses 1 through 12. He's building on what he said so far. Your inheritance is kept in heaven for you and God will keep you for it. Peter is reminding his hearers that their identity is in their roots are in God's electing love by which he has foreknown them. God has justified them by Jesus' death and resurrection, and he has called them and he will glorify them. And it is because of this that you can have hope. This command to have hope in one sense is telling you, well, now you are able to. You couldn't have hope before when you were in the world with no inheritance. But now that you have this inheritance and this grace of God and this this grace that is going to be revealed to you in Jesus Christ, now you can have hope. So now you are able, and also because of this, you must have hope. Because if you truly are in Christ, you can't help but have hope. And the proper Christian response then is to live in hope because of the grace of God that has been given to us in Jesus Christ. And Peter says that there's this grace that's going to come at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus is going to come again. The final revelation of Jesus, he will return to reign and he is going to judge the deeds of every person, whether good or bad. For every single conscious person here, the thought of judgment for every single one of your sins and your deeds and your thoughts, that's horrifying. It makes me want to curl in a ball in the corner and weep for the shame But Peter is essentially saying to his readers, to his hearers, stop this irrationality. He tells the believers in Asia Minor to set their hope fully on that grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. When that day comes, you will not be condemned for your sins. Set your hope on that grace of what Christ has done, where he has died and paid the penalty for your sin and offered you righteousness and life. Jesus has redeemed you and already suffered the condemnation for your sins. And there is therefore now no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. And you will be declared righteous and welcomed with the words, well done, good and faithful servant. Set your hope fully on the grace that will come on judgment day. Peter's telling them you're no longer rooted in trying to do good works and trying to obey the law in order that you might please God. No, no. now you are rooted in Jesus, where your sins have been paid for in the person of Christ, and that is the one in whom you are rooted. He is the soil you're planted in. Grace is where you are found. Let that reality be soaked up into all of who you are, and let it show itself as the vibrant colors of the gospel, the fruit of the Spirit in your life, because you have hope. And Peter tells us specifically how to live in this hope. He tells us right at the beginning, those dependent phrases at the beginning, he says, preparing your minds for action and being sober minded. Peter's telling them you have hope. So therefore you don't, you you have an anchor in that hope. So you don't have to be tossed to and fro by the circumstances of, of your life or the discouragement of your sin He's telling them be spiritually minded, resist the spell of the world, resist the enemy that wants to tell you how hopeless you are. On the contrary, believers in Jesus, you have hope. You must arm yourselves with these truths. You must recall your rootedness in grace and in hope. You must be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You must be prepared to stand on truth when the enemy throws arrows at you. And you must be ready to do the deeds of grace and forgiveness and reconciliation and generosity and sacrifice as you are called upon to do that in this life. Be prepared for action. Not on your feeble strength, but because God has rooted you in His. This is why we recite a confession of faith like we do every week, so that we root our minds again in knowing what we believe and reminding ourselves of the truths of the gospel, that they might not just be words on our tongues, but words that soak into our minds and into our hearts and then out into our lives. That's why it is an immeasurable. Benefit to have your own copy of God's word where you can read again and again and again every day the truth of God's redemption for us and His grace toward us while we were still sinners. Set your hope fully on God's grace that will come. Set your hope on God's grace because you are firmly grounded in that redemptive, eternal love of God and His grace will not fail. The second command is to be holy. He says in verse 14, As obedient children, again, dependent clause here, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. We think of this idea of holiness and we think of saints and we think of people robed in white who do no wrong. This call to holiness is not an abstract call to some theoretical holiness. This holiness is defined against the world and in terms of God. What God has done in order to make you able to be holy is that he has freed you from your conformity to the passions of your former ignorance. You are no longer slave to sin. He has now enabled you to live in obedience, and to live in holiness. To be holy is to be set apart. This call is to be people who are different in their conduct. Consider Peter's recipients, the people in Asia Minor, who are living in a pagan world where pagan rituals and godless thinking are dominating, and where people do whatever is right in their own eyes, and where consideration of what God might think is the last thing on their minds. Wait, was that a description of Peter's recipients or was that a description of our lives we live in the same situation where these godless this godless thinking is dominant where people do whatever is right in their own eyes and where consideration of what god might think is the last thing on people's minds this is a call to holiness where we are rooted in who god is and we see his holiness as the standard for what is right and wrong not the whims and wishes of whatever people are feeling that day God is holy. His character is holy. He is pure. He is blameless. He is without fault. And we see him him express what it looks like for us to live consistently with his character when we look at the Ten Commandments. This is God showing the moral law, what it looks like to properly be in relationship with him, and the first four commandments show us how to love God, and the last six commandments tell us how to love others. As Jesus said, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. On these hang all the law and the prophets. That's the summary of holiness, is to love God and to love others. And this is done by obedience. You see, that's what Peter says in verse 14, you're obedient children. Obedience forms your heart. And your heart forms your obedience. Sometimes... Obedience needs to be a conscious decision that we make against our innate desires against what we want to do. And it needs to be a decision that transforms our hearts to love what God loves. And it can do that at other times. Our obedience is a subconscious, seemingly natural decision that flows from a transformed heart that loves what God loves. And so God has promised that just like He gave new affections to His children when the Spirit gives them life and faith, so He hones and He grows those affections so that we love what He loves more and more. As we're rooted in the reality that we are bound in that intimate relationship with the Holy God. And this holiness looks like conformity to God rather than conformity to the world. Honestly, much of our Christian growth requires us to choose to obey God rather than to obey the evil outside of us and the evil inside of us. It has to be a conscious decision. When we sin, we have chosen to disobey God. And so to obey, we must choose to obey. And Peter says, you used to live in ignorance and then conformity to the passions of death. It was expected that they would be conformed to the the passions of ignorance and, and sin. But now they live in the spirit. So they've been freed. They've been liberated from that old slave master of death. And they're now able to choose to obey the way of life. You know, Peter hints at this. He says, God has called you. Verse 15, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy. God has called you. And God is not going to call you to do something without enabling you to do it. So ultimately, what God is calling us to do is to trust in what Christ has done in His holiness for us. No one is saved by your works or your adherence to the law. If you do not have faith in Jesus Christ, Martin Luther famously realized that when he was reading in Romans about the righteousness of God that has been revealed, it doesn't mean that uh, Paul is saying, look at how righteous God is. What he's saying is God has revealed a righteousness as a gift, a righteousness that we can take as ours by faith. When we look upon Jesus and we see how holy Jesus was, then his holiness becomes ours. And that's the only way we could ever become holy. That's the only way when we stand before God that he'll ever look at us and say, you were faithful to be holy as I am holy because you put yourself in Christ. That's the only way we can be holy. That righteousness is received, of course, by faith in Jesus. So the command that Peter gives here is to be rooted in faith in Jesus and in his righteousness for you. But it's important that you don't just stop there. Because from that grows the obedience of faith. Faith obeys. And so from your faith in Christ grows obedience. And you see that fruit of the Spirit with an increasing conformity to the model of life that God has given rather than the former ignorant passions of death. And so we are holy as God is holy. Third, conduct yourselves with fear. Verses 17 through 21 are another long sentence. And so we'll look at them together here. Christians are no longer bound to the feudal ways that they inherited, but they have been redeemed from that. And what God has done in order to make make us able to conduct ourselves properly is that he has provided the ransom from your former ways of futility through the blood of Jesus Christ. You are redeemed and ransomed because of Jesus Christ's blood. Now, you say, I don't want to live in fear. He says, conduct yourselves in fear. Now, it's important to note this is not a debilitating fear. This is an honor in irreverence, because what you're not doing is ignoring God anymore. You see God in his glory and his power and you can look at him in reverence rather than cowering away and refusing to be in his presence or scoffing at him like the world does. You can take seriously his rule and you can take seriously his reign and his justice and you can now fear him properly if you are in Christ. And if you understand the severity of sin and your condition before him you must fear him properly what's important is that god has freed his people from the feudal ways they inherited so a lot of people have debated here is is peter writing to gentiles or to jews did the jews inherit feudal ways did the gentiles inherit feudal ways well gentile paganism in the roman world the pantheon, uh, the life in that pagan world. It would certainly fit the description of feudal ways inherited from your forefathers. So Peter almost certainly has his Gentile hearers in mind. But there are some some examples from the Jewish world as well where they had assimilated pagan religion and therefore also had quite a feudal way that they had passed down. Uh, One commentator gives some examples here. Uh, She says, Judaism was indeed influenced by the pagan cultures encountered in the diaspora. For example, Roman Jews apparently overlooked the biblical prohibition of graven images in any absolute sense, even uh, as mythological figures could find a place on Jewish tombs. So it seems they had assimilated mythology with their religion. Also, the Jews in Rome had forsaken the laws of Judaism, many of them, and others simply just forsook their ancient religion altogether and became heathens. And there were some Jews from Galilee who were involved with the production of pagan art for their synagogues, art that was displaying the astrological zodiac and Hercules and Medusa and things that looked like the Dionysus cult. And so even Judaism could be described in terms like the Greco-Roman paganism was, as a feudal way inherited. But even if a Jew had followed faithfully, even Paul himself, a, a top pedigree Jew, even considered the ways that he inherited from his forefathers as futile, as rubbish, and as garbage, compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Christ. And so the point here is it doesn't matter any semblance of religiosity, even consistent Judaism or Christianity as just a tradition. These are useless without knowing Jesus Christ himself. What Peter's getting at in these verses is what an old tent revival preacher would say. What verse 19 says, we must be washed in the blood. We must be ransomed by the blood of Jesus Christ. And this term ransom or redeemed, it's a term describing the purchase of a person out of slavery. A slave, somebody would go give money on behalf of a slave to the temple cult. The temple would then buy the slave from the owner as a sign of the god or goddess purchasing the slave from slavery. And so um, those, of course, were a sham because there, there is no other god. Only one god has truly redeemed his people out of slavery. And we see him throughout the Old Testament. God speaks of redeeming his people from Egypt. And he he redeems his people from Babylon without money, as Isaiah 52 says. And as our verse here says in verse 18, Peter says, not with perishable things such as silver or gold. God has redeemed us with the blood of Jesus. Jesus is that lamb without blemish or without spot. And God had chosen that before the foundation of the world, Jesus would be the one to pay for sins. Jesus would be that that spotless lamb without blemish who would identify with his people and could be offered to pay for the sins of his people. That sacrifice that Peter witnessed that he wrote about and he told about in the Gospel of Mark. This was the once for all sacrifice and Peter says, it is received by faith. You have to receive what Christ has done so that your faith and your hope are in God. You trust in God as the provider and you trust in Jesus as the provision. And by that, you are saved. And Peter tells us that you can do this command. You, you can live in proper reverence and awe of God by a healthy dread of the great judge and the danger of sin. You must realize the danger of your sin." Because you think about Christ as the judge and He will bring to judgment all things, all deeds. Sin is not something to be played with. And we also live in this proper reverence and fear by knowing that we have been ransomed from our former feudal ways by Jesus' blood and by nothing else, the lamb without blemish or spot. He is the one who makes us able to live in reverent fear and to be in God's presence without being consumed. And we do it by reverent obedience to God's commands, even as we live in exile in this world, as Peter's recipients are living in exile in Asia Minor. Paul says in Philippians, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. And listen, he he reminds you that it's still God helping you. He says, for it is God who works in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. We must do this in full dependence upon our God, for he is the one who works. We live now not with debilitating fear, but with reverent honor. We live confidently in faith in Christ, whose blood has covered every one of our sins. And now we move on to the next command to love one another. Love one another. This comes in, comes in verses 22 through 25. The point is that Christian, the Christian distinctive among a dying world is that they see new birth yields earnest love for one another. How do we do this? It's because God has made us born again. God has loved us and given us life so we can only love because he loved us first. We have been purified or set apart by our obedience to the truth, specifically by Christ's obedience on our behalf. And we are no longer slaves to the world or to our flesh. And the purpose of this calling and of this salvation is for a sincere, what that means literally is an unhypocritical brotherly love. We talk about loving others and we say we're going to do it, but it's so often hypocritical. We say one thing and act another, uh, act a different way. It's important to point out here, Peter is talking to his recipients and emphasizing to them the fact that the community of believers is a crucial part of their growth as Christians. If you're going to faithfully live out of the salvation God has given you, that means you're going to love and not just some abstract concept of love, you're going to love one another earnestly, which means you'll be together, which means you will be in fellowship together and in church together. And it's not, of course, that hallmark or that Hollywood love, but it's an earnest love from a pure heart where you're not seeking to get things your way and and love people for your own good, but it is out of a selflessness. And you love because you have now received new life that will not perish through the living and abiding word of God. That living and abiding Word of God Peter talks about when he quotes here, all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the Word of the Lord remains forever. The glories of man. He talks about flesh and glory. Think about the greatest accomplishments of humankind. The greatest glories of man and of the earth. They're like the flowers of the grass. They come and they go and they fade and they wither. Some of the grandest glories of humanity have been in some impressive empires. The Roman Empire, no matter matter how often you think about it. And the current American Empire are two examples of some of these great glories of humankind. But these two fade and wither. The greatest things we can accomplish as, as humankind fade and wither. Only the word of the Lord remains forever. His promises and the salvation that we find written in his word will never, ever fade. They remain forever. And this, Peter tells us in verse 25, is that good news that was preached to you. It's that same good news I tell you today of who Jesus is and what he has done. And this gospel will never fade. Freed from sin, now you can love freely because your gospel will not fail. And if you are truly rooted in the new life and the Spirit, you must necessarily love others. This is love in the concrete. Love is not something that can be done in the abstract. You're not supposed to become a Christian in some general sense. We become Christians in very specific ways, applying the grace we've received to the people closest to us. Even the ones who rub us the wrong way. Even the ones that are difficult. Even the ones who have wronged us. This means that those Ten Commandments are very real and very active in the lives of Christians who are to love one another. Jesus said that to love your neighbor is to follow these Ten Commandments, specifically the second half about how to relate to your neighbor. Honor your father and your mother. That's how you love Don't murder or hate. That's how you love. Do not commit adultery. That's how you love. Do not steal. Do not lie. Do not covet. This is how we love one another. And so your sanctification and your call to holiness and obedience are for how we relate to fellow Christians. And so how we treat one another in the church and in the body of Christ at large will show how rooted we are in the love that God has for us. And lastly, we long for the pure spiritual milk. Christians long for healthful growth in the new life that they have been given. And Christians long to consume that which is pure and rich and vital. There is so much trash that the world wants us to consume. Poison. Drinks of death. But the way that we're able to long for pure spiritual milk is purely because of what God has done. He has made us born again. He has regenerated us. He has given us longings for things that are good and true and right. And he has given us a taste of it. Peter quotes Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. He quotes it here and says, you have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. You have tasted. And he uses this analogy of milk. If this makes you uncomfortable, get past that and look at how important it is for a baby to have milk. A baby will die without the milk. It's necessary for survival. And they used to understand, they used to believe Back in these days, that morality was also transported by the milk that a baby consumed. So it wasn't just the physical support, but also the spiritual life that came by this milk. And so you and I are to drink and to long for spiritual milk that is healthy and good and vital. We have tasted that the Lord is good if indeed you believe in Jesus Christ you know, Peter cuts out the seeing part because he's going with this analogy of milk. and He says, you have tasted that the Lord is good because tasting is, that, is a metaphor that emphasizes that significant engagement on the part of the baby. Tasting and consuming and growing and being filled and nurtured with that milk. You and I now can long for this, this milk this pure spiritual milk because we've tasted it in Christ. And once you have tasted it, you must and you will long for what is good because there's no turning back from this good gospel of Jesus. And it's by this milk that we grow up into the salvation that we've received. How else do you expect to grow as a Christian if you are not growing in these truths that God gives us? If we are not dependent upon Christ and upon His Spirit, What you consume, we're all consuming something. We're all living off of something and what we consume will make us who we are. The milk that we drink makes us either into men and women of God or men and women of the world. In a very real sense, you are what you eat. And we are commanded here to eat pure spiritual milk, to long for the word of God, to soak it up into the veins of our soul and to let it reinvigorate us with nutrients and life and to be changed by it. The word of God, the good news of the gospel and all that God has given to his people for life and godliness is powerful. It cuts to the core and it does not return void. By this, we grow up into salvation now that we have tasted that the Lord is good. And Peter tells us, he he actually enjoins some specific commands in chapter two, verse one to this command to long for pure spiritual milk. And he says, you're going to know that you're longing for the right stuff if you're loving others well. And if you're loving others well, here's what it doesn't look like. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. If, if you're loving somebody, there's no malice. Peter says, put away all malice. If you're seeking ill for others, if you're trying to bring people down, that is not love. There should not be a single person in this church or in the church at large, or in the world at all that you seek ill for. Christians love. And and Peter says, put away deceit. If you're concealing or twisting the truth to your advantage, or to try to keep something hidden, that is not love for one another. And hypocrisy. Peter says, put that away. If you present yourself in one way that's entirely inconsistent with your character, Put that away because that's not loving either to the people that you are growing with and envy. If you care more for people's possessions than you do for them, that is not love. And all slander, Peter says, speaking ill of others, we should always speak words that build each other up according to their need, that it may benefit those who listen. Let's be those who speak well, who speak truth of our God, who love one another, and who love Christ's church, his bride. As we love Christ himself for the good news that he has done for us and because God has loved us first. In these five commands, we see this. God has acted and he has made you able to respond. He has placed you in the rich soil of the gospel and of his grace. So now go and live out of that freedom and that new birth that he has given to you. In a new life of faith and a life of holiness. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we know that we are unable. And so, for us even to be able to grow as Christians and to love one another and to hope well and in our obedience and in the way that we conduct ourselves with proper fear and reverence and in the ways that we long for the pure spiritual milk we can't do any of these on our own so we praise you and we thank you that you have put us in a place and given us a savior and filled us with a spirit who makes us able to no longer live according to death in the world but to live in life in christ pray now that as we come to take of that bread and that, that wine, that blood that has redeemed us, we would see how much You have done to root us in salvation. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.